Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 373 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17, The Launch. Stage propellant tanks have been pressurized, now past the one-minute mark, and we are going on internal power. Now all systems to internal power. We'll be looking for the engine start sequence at the 8.9-second mark in the countdown. The engines will build up to a thrust of 7.6 million pounds. T-minus 30 seconds. We have a cutoff. We have a cutoff at T-minus 30 seconds. We're standing by at T-minus 30-second mark. We'll bring word to you uh, just as soon as we get it. We have a cutoff at T-minus 30 seconds. T-minus 30 seconds and holding. This is Kennedy Launch Control. Engineers now begin a frantic race with the clock to debug the problem before the launch window closed. In the command module, Ron, Jack, and Gene sat immobile, the three of them tightly bound to their little couches, more than 300 feet in the air, grumbling about electronic gremlins. Although they were atop a fully-fueled booster, they were in no additional danger, but the service tower swung back into place, just in case. This Apollo Saturn launch control, the swing arm number 9, is now back to that retract uh, position at the 12-degree position point out that the window we have tonight extends to 1.31 a.m., so we have some time here to assess the problem uh, and then continue, recycle and continue our countdown. We're continuing to hold at the 30-second mark at this time, T-minus 30 seconds and holding. This is Kennedy Launch Control. Cernan did not like this at all. It reminded him of the Jiminy Scrubs, but that was a different time, and vehicle. He was no longer a 29-year-old rookie astronaut, so instead he thought of Sherall, Stafford, and Shepard, and ordered himself to remain the cool mission commander. Although doubts filled his mind until he started to believe they were not going to launch that night after all. Then his thoughts turned back to the thousands of people standing out there in the dark, getting eaten alive by mosquitoes and waiting for the spectacular launch. Gene managed to convince himself that if they had a scrub, all his friends 
who by now had run out of liquor, would leave in a hurry and be unable to come back, and that he would finally depart earth, watched only by an audience of alligators, mud turtles, and mosquitoes. Jack Smith's first thought was the one thing he didn't want was an aborted launch on the launch pad, which might prompt a delay as long as a month. He just couldn't take another month of simulator training. He was ready to go now. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, the astronaut crew aboard the spacecraft going through their various safing now, safing of all systems, and the launch team here continuing through their emergency procedures. We'll be standing by to check, uh, check out the problem just as soon as we can get word. Now that the crew had nothing to do, time crawled by as they lay there, wondering about what sort of failure had occurred and how long it was going to last. Was it ground control equipment? or the booster itself. Could the problem be found? And if found, could it be fixed? Cernan dreaded the possibility that one of the launch team would start unlocking the hatch. Smith seemed to be in some sort of trance, perhaps thinking about the fact that he was sitting atop a powerful bomb that was waiting to go off but more likely just reviewing the thousands of things for which he had prepared during training. Gene had changed his mind about Dr. Rock. He was as ready as any astronaut could be. Unflappable combat vet Ron Evans, so sharp and patriotic that they called him Captain America, didn't think the delay was any big deal, and went to sleep. His relaxed snore was a deep undertone to the chatter on the radio. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're remaining still in the T-minus 30-second mark. We'll remain here for some period. It will take approximately 35 to 40 minutes to recycle back to T-minus 22 minutes, where we'll resume the count. To explain again, what had happened was we were in what was called the terminal countdown sequencer. At three minutes, seven seconds in the countdown, we go on to an automatic system called a terminal countdown sequencer. This countdown sequencer initi initiates various actions, the final actions in the count. Each of these must occur on schedule and in sequence. Now, what happened at this particular time was the third stage liquid oxygen tank was not automatically pressurized as it should have been. The launch crew here in the firing room, when they saw this, manually pressurized that system, but it was too late to satisfy the sequencer. The next event in the sequence was the retraction of swing arm number one, swing arm going over to the first stage, and at that time, the sequencer did not see that the tank had been pressurized and sent an automatic cutoff. So we had an automatic cutoff at the 30-second mark. We're standing by at the 30-second mark to uh, go back to T-minus 22 minutes, and we are reevaluating the, the problem, looking at uh, what caused the sequencer not to automatically pressurize that tank, seeing what that problem is, and seeing if there's a possibility if we go ahead and do this manually early in the sequence, if that will satisfy the sequencer, and we can proceed. That was the first analysis of the problem, which was just slightly different from the actual problem as described by Jack Smith. 
This is how he described it from Oral History 2000. Somewhere in the deep, dark past of the computer programming, a programmer had told the final sequencing checks that the computer was going to check to see if a signal to pressurize a booster oxygen tank had been sent, not whether it had been received and acted upon, but whether it had been sent. Well, when they went through that particular point where that signal was supposed to have been sent and the tank pressurized, the signal didn't get sent. The computer didn't send the signal, but the person in launch control saw that that didn't happen and they just pressed a button and pressurized the tank. So everything was fine. But the computer didn't know. When they went through the final sequence, the computer saw that that signal hadn't been sent and it said hold. So the computer just shut everything down. That's what you want them to do. It's just that it was programmed wrong. To solve that problem, they actually went into the launch computer, tracked down that point, and hardwired around that particular sensor so that the next time the computer went through the launch sequence, it would believe that the signal had been sent. And Gene Cernan agreed. In the 1973 technical brief, he said, Quote, the problem turned out to be apparently in the software of the ground support equipment. End quote. The Saturn V continued to hum and mumble as the engineers kept topping off the frigid fuel. Gene could almost feel it breathing and seemed to be straining at its leash. But Gene was having his own personal problem, laying flat on his back with his legs elevated, pressure built in exorbitantly on his kidneys until he could hold it no longer and peed in his pants. The first American astronaut to fly, Al Shepard, had done it. So, at the opposite end of the timeline, it seemed appropriate to bookend things. <laughs> Thanks to Al's urinating in his suit, designers had come up with a sort of space-age motorman's friend that let an astronaut relieve himself without such a big deal. And Gene could feel the eerie touch of warm liquid flowing through a tube and into the collection bag around his abdomen. He assumed success, but knew that if the bag broke, they would be picking up blobs of urine for the rest of the trip. Eventually, the bag's contents would be flushed away when they got into space, and the freezing temperature outside the spacecraft would turn the droplets into a cloud of bright, drifting crystals. Some astronauts described those routine dumps, which Wally Sherall nicknamed the constellation Urion, as being among the most amazing sights they saw on an entire voyage. One of the many problems with delaying the launch was prior to the launch, three guidance systems had to be aligned to match the expected orientation of the launch pad at the time of liftoff. 
Additionally, one of those axes had to be aligned to launch azimuth, the bearing of the vehicle's ground track from the pad. That launch azimuth was designed to place the spacecraft at the correct starting point for the translunar injection burn, which in just under three hours into the flight would send them to the moon. But each time the launch was delayed, the launch azimuth had to be changed to compensate for the Earth's continued rotation. This entailed realignment of all three systems. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, still in our hold at the 32nd mark. While the launch team here is busy recycling to the T-minus 22-minute mark, the mission team out at the Manned Spacecraft Center also pre-planning some of the new uh, times for the mission. They're also at uh, this time busily pre-planning the new launch azimuth. The azimuth uh, now, if we go at the next opportunity, would be 81.06 degrees. This will be automatically fed into the instrument unit of the Saturn V vehicle from the manned spacecraft center. All elements of the launch team now putting everything together, checking over data, and doing their best to uh, put us back into a recycle position, ready to pick up the count at the T-minus 2, 22-minute mark. Still evaluate, evaluating data, however, and we have not at this time been given a go for that uh, resuming of the count. But, of course, the main problem that caused the delay was with the sequencer. For the next couple of hours, the launch team worked with Houston and the Marshall Space Flight Center to devise a workaround for the problem. Meanwhile, the countdown was recycled to 22 minutes and eventually allowed to run down to T-8 minutes, where it was once again put on hold. Apollo Saturn launch control, we're continuing to hold at the T-minus eight-minute mark. Meantime, the crew is getting a variety of updates in the uh, spacecraft, updating them on various aspects and the changes to their mission due to this whole period. Also at the manned spacecraft center, they're continuing uh, to update the flight azimuth as uh, they get new times for the launch. Launch Operations Manager Paul Donnelly uh, just went through quite an extensive briefing with the spacecraft test conductor to pass on to the crew uh, what they feel the problems were and how they plan to work around it. The crew uh, aboard the spacecraft indicated that if the launch team was satisfied with these solutions, they certainly were confident themselves. The reason the T-minus eight-minute mark is chosen for this hold, as mentioned earlier, has to do with the chill-down of the thrust chambers in the S2, or second stage, and the third stage. Both of these stage stages use liquid hydrogen, an extremely cold or cryogenic fuel, and the thrust chamber must be conditioned prior to flight so that it's ready at the time of ignition in flight to receive these fuels coming in. To achieve the proper temperature, the <clears throat> the thrust chamber chill-down should not exceed 20 minutes, but it must be on for at least 7 minutes and 40 seconds. So rounding that off, the, the hold was called at the 8-minute mark. We can continuously hold it at this point, whereas if we continued on down, uh, we would have to watch these parameters very closely so that we did not exceed that 20-minute accumulated cooling time. At this point, we can continue our hold uh, and that continuation can be determined by the problem, and we can pick up then at any time or continue as long as necessary. 
And then, finally, word came from Marshall that the solution they had been testing would work. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're continuing our hold at the T-minus eight-minute mark. We have approximately five more minutes remaining in that hold. It's been determined that the workaround uh, is a correct and satisfactory one, a breadboard or a sample system uh, at the Marshall Space Flight Center was used to run through the entire sequence as it's now configured, and that operated satisfactorily. Gene almost let out a cheer when they gave him the word the countdown was resuming. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're now resuming the count. T-minus 7 minutes, 54 seconds, and counting. At this time in the spacecraft, updates being given to the spacecraft commander, Eugene Cernan. The swing arm still at the 12-degree position. That's the park position standing by at the spacecraft. That will be brought back to the full retract position at uh, approximately T-minus 5 minutes in the countdown. The flight director just ran through the, uh, his team a, a status report from his team at the Mission Control Center. Uh, that team all reported they are in a go condition. Now T-minus 7 minutes, 20 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. Now let's skip ahead in the countdown to T-minus one minute. The countdown mark, T-minus one minute and counting. Now in the final minute of the countdown. At T-minus 45 seconds, Gene Cernan will make the final guidance alignment. This is the uh, mark, T-minus 45, and Gene Cernan made that final guidance alignment. That's the last action taken by the crew aboard the space vehicle. Now approaching the half minute mark. T minus 33, T minus 30 seconds, and continuing on now, continuing on at the T minus 26 second mark, T minus 25. We'll get a final guidance uh, release at the T minus 17 second mark. T minus 17, final guidance release. We'll expect engine ignition at 8.9 seconds. 10, 9, 8, 7, Ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. Two, one, zero. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff, and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center as the Saturn V is moving off the pad. It has now cleared the tower. There was a brilliant and almost frightening burst of orange fire below the Saturn where the five huge engines ignited with a fury that shook the land and sea for miles around, and thick columns of white smoke boiled into the spotlights, instant angry storms that rushed away across the low ground. For nine long seconds, the power built, and the thunderclap roar spread over the sand dunes and marshlands, making people in the grandstands three miles away cover their ears and shield their eyes as the deafening staccato blast shoved against their bodies hard enough for them to feel shirt buttons pressed against their chest. At 12.33 a.m. December 7, 1972, the hold down arms released and the mighty Saturn V stirred balanced on a dazzling fireball that grew to the size of an atomic bomb. As a show-stopping spectacular, nothing in the entire space program compared to the night launch.
The clock has started, Gene told Launch Control. Thrust is good on all five engines, Capcom responded. Music to the astronauts' ears. They were on their way. The vibration wiggled up the tower and shook them as the big rocket came alive, an inferno growing and growling and seemingly out of control. But it wasn't. Gene held it in his hands. The awakened Saturn V would now respond to him, go where he wanted, and do exactly what he told it. He had the power to steer it into the heavens or to close it down. Prior to the bolts blowing far below, someone else had been making the decisions. But from here on, Cernan called the shots for this shaking and quaking monster, and he happily endured every jolt. For this was the payoff for his big gamble with Deke Slayton. For good, bad, or worse, over the next 13 days, Cernan would be responsible for what happened. Sir, y'all's complete. We're in the roll, Bob. Up they went, crashing through a feathery layer of mist, a beautiful shot in the dark, into a roll at 12 seconds. G-forces pushing them down while the rocket pushed them up a soul-searching lifetime as they swept away from the pad, trailing a searing tail a half-mile long and so bright that it lit up the night sky from the old north state to Cuba. The reflected fiery light bounced off the clouds and came through Gene's window to paint his instrument panel a violent red. All systems were working perfectly, and Ron yelled, Whoopee! as Jack cried out, We're going up, man, oh man! Now this was odd. Ron's reaction was about as expected, but the quiet, Harvard-trained scientist must have snuck his talkative twin aboard the Apollo 17 while nobody was looking, for the no-nonsense geologist was actually having fun. Roger, Gino, looking great. Thrust good on all five engines. Okay, babe, it's looking good here. Roll is complete. We are pitching. This is Mission Control, Gene Cernan, reporting uh, uh, the launch vehicle, maneuvering to the proper attitude. Everything looking good at this point. 17 is go. Roger, 17, you're go. First stage looks good. Altitude 1.1 miles. Booster says we look good. We're now at 2.5 miles. Mark, mode 1, Bravo. Roger, one Bravo, we're going one minute. Roger, Gene, you're looking great. Right on the line. Everybody says looking great, right on the line. We're now one mile downrange. Launch vehicle 4.2 miles high. Coming up on maximum dynamic pressure at this point. Four miles downrange, eight miles high, and the velocity approaching 3,000 feet per second. Looking great. Stand by for mode one, Charlie, 17. Mark, mode one, Charlie. And the flight dynamics officer says we look good on all sources, uh, right on the trajectory. Roger, 17, you're go. Flight director Gene Kranz taking a status for staging. We say we look good for staging. Roger, we're going here. Inboard cutoff. Roger, inboard. Inboard engine shutting down on time as planned. 
crew will experience maximum G-forces of about 4 Gs uh, at shutdown. Coming up on first stage shutdown. And we've had shutdown on time on the first stage. Five. Roger, they're looking here, looking good. Sure felt like it. I think we saw them all from here. Roger, Jack, and the thrust is going, all five of them, they're running good. Okay, three minutes in, we're go. Roger, 17. At two minutes and 40 seconds, the first stage rockets burned out, and the crew was gobbled up by a fireball, the likes of which Cernan had never seen. A maelstrom of flame that questioned his certain knowledge that they were not burning up. And they weren't. It was normal. The straps holding them to their couches strained as they were slung forward and back, side to side, again and again. When the second stage fired to take over propulsion, people on the ground saw the separation as the explosion of a minor blue star, and the astronauts catapulted right through that ominous fireball, increasing speed. This is how Ron Evans described it. You know, and then they continue down through the countdown, and then it gets down to 10 seconds prior to liftoff, and that's when they ignite those big seven and a half million pounds of thrust engines, and then the in, in rocket starts to shake and vibrate, but it can't get off of the ground. You know, it's still held down onto, onto, onto the launch pad, and then it gets down to T zero. These hold down arms release, and then the old rocket starts going up in the air and accelerating, and, and you're on top of that old, and it's shaking, shaking and vibrating and banging away. You know, and then you're going fast and faster and faster and as it accelerates and it's still shaking and it starts pushing you back into the seat until two minutes and ten seconds into the flight you've got four and a half G's or four and a half times your own weight pushing you back down into the seat and it's shaking on bang 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 and then bang the engine quits you're out of gas <laughs> you know, you're out of gas on the first stage of the rocket you know, and you're only 25 miles above the earth you know, and, and you had all of that force pushing you back down in the seat, and that instantaneous deceleration, and then the rocket goes, yoing, 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 and it vibrates up and down in the longitudinal direction, and then the first stage drops off, and then the second stage ignites, and again, you have five big rocket engines on there, but you're above most of the Earth's atmosphere, and all the vibration and shaking stops, and it's a nice, smooth ride. Gene radioed Capcom, four minutes, and we're go here. Capcom came back instantly. Roger, Gene. We're going around the room. Looks go here. You're looking real good, Gene. Right down the line. There goes the tower. Ah, there she goes. Roger the tower. You're mode two. Roger, mode two. The escape tower separation, barely noticeable in daylight, tore away in a blinding burst of light akin to the birth of a comet and yanked off the shroud that covered the other windows. Ron and Jack could now see the enchantment unfolding around them. Soon Jack would start to jabber like a kid at the circus. The crew continued to rush out into the star-dotted heavens, dumped the second stage at about nine and a half minutes, then slipped into Earth orbit on the third stage, only a dozen minutes after liftoff as easy as falling into a favorite easy chair. Then the first thing you want to know is how fast you're going. So you say, hey, computer, how fast are we going? And the computer reads back and says, you are traveling 
17,500 miles an hour. You're really whipping around the earth, I'll tell you. <laughs> Man, I went, you know, it only takes you an hour and a half now to go all the way around the earth. <laughs> and, and then uh, we're in Earth orbit, though. Back on Earth in the spectator viewing area, there was no difficulty following something that glowed as bright as the sun at midnight. And down in Florida, Barbara and Tracy watched their husbands leaving the planet from a small point surrounded by water. When the brilliant light flared from their engines, schools of startled fish leaped into the air, hung there, wiggling and silvery for a moment and splashed back down, churning the water into a froth. The earth trembled and false daylight brightened the area like high noon, then swiftly faded back to darkness. This wasn't a launch, it was a dream. Jean's girls had been surrounded by so many people for so many days, the objects of so much attention, that they welcomed the respite provided by the liftoff. Feeling linked through the noise and flame to their husband and father in the distant spacecraft, that was soaring away from Earth. No matter what happened, they were together. Tracy said she was unafraid and never entertained the slightest thought that Jean wasn't coming home again. But in truth, she clutched the Apollo 17 emblem on her gray maxi skirt and cried. Now I want to play the best version of the Apollo launch that I believe I have ever presented. It begins at liftoff and ends at orbit. It includes the astronauts' capsule conversations that were not transmitted over the radio. It is candid and exciting, and I will issue a foul language warning. I will play it uninterrupted. You won't want to miss this. We have a liftoff, and it's lighting up the Approaching 3,000 feet per second. Yeah, yeah, that's great. 2G. 
two and a half G's. See it quiets out after max Q. Yep, quiets out. Push three G's. Okay, yeah. Get an old man up there anymore. Yep. <laughs> okay, we're out of max Q. Okay. Cabin's still looking good. Alpha is BC. Okay, stand by for uh stand by for mode one Charlie something. One Charlie. Mark. Mode one Charlie.
Here Capcom, Robert Overmeyer uh, advising Gene Cernan, the crew aboard Apollo 17. The second stage shut down uh, at about 9 minutes, 20 seconds elapsed time. Uh, that shut down about 3 and a half uh, minutes. Did we get anything yet, Ron? Nope. Okay, we're still mode 2. Stand by back. for S4B to COI capability. Mark, S4B to COI capability. Roger, S4B to COI, we're going 6. Okay, give them orders. Go ahead. Roger, Jim. Pitch one, got it. And you all one, got it. Go ahead. Okay, wait a minute. Pitch two, got it. And you all two. Apollo 17 got still it. right on okay, the nominal trajectory. Uh, at an altitude now, we're at 92 okay, nautical Bob, miles. Okay, uh, Bob, we got four good motors, and we're going 620. Roger, at 17, we copied the gimbals. We watched them. They looked good. 1G? <laughs> Just like sitting on the bed. And... Silver Star. Okay, our <laughs> calibration on that tank changed a little bit again, apparently. Okay. Down to 90, 90%. Oh, on the tank, too? On the hydrogen. Hydrogen tank, three. Stand by for S4B to order capability. Roger, Mark, S4B to order capability. And we'd like Omni Delta, Jack. Roger, uh, two, seven you minutes. Got now seven minutes in, we have sufficient velocity to make over to the Saturn third stage should we have an unexpected early shutdown in the second stage. My glad I took my hand off that aboard hand. So am I. I'll tell you. Okay, we gotta get through this line and then through staging. Stand by for info. Now less than two minutes from second stage shutdown and ignition of the Saturn third stage. Stand by for inboard. And the center engine will be shutting down as scheduled in about 10 seconds. We're inboard cutoff. Roger, Dane inboard on time. And that inboard shutdown looked to be on time. Okay, and she pitches up just like the simulator. Yep, sure does, pitches. Apollo 17 now, 625 miles downrange, 93 miles in altitude. <laughs> Eight minutes and we are go. Right here, 17, you're looking great. Okay, everything's okay. God, the system is really good. Let's stand by for a PU shift. Is that what that was? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was it. The spacecraft guidance okay, system is reading very closely with the Saturn guidance. Okay. It looks good. Go for staging. Thank you, Bob. Uh, we are go for staging up here. A little over G. There's a little chuck. Staging now less than one minute. Okay, we got to get through this one. Coming in, we're in level sense arm now. You have level sense arm this time, Jake. Roger, Bob, level sense arm. Okay, Ryan, our next thing will be standby for mode four, and we'll have a 17 traveling at 21,000 feet per second. It's achieved about 83% of the velocity required for a minimum burn. orbit. Nine Bob and uh, 17 is go. Roger, 17, you're go here. Okay, stand by. And about 10 seconds to stay. 10 seconds. Stand by for O4 capability. O4 capability and we copy cut off. Roger, O4. And we do have S4B ignition. Roger, we see it. The stress is looking good on it. Yeah, you see that glow up? Go fast. Yeah, we're right in the flame. 
Yeah, that's what the uh, tech used to do. He used to fly through the flame of that thing. Let's uh, let's press on here. We got a lot to do. Remote four. We're up to 23,000 feet per second. Okay, we're, we're shooting at, uh, for something a little less than half uh, over 25,000. Okay, ten minutes, Ron. I'll be at about uh, 40. shutdown, about one minute from orbit insertion. 11 minutes and we are go. Roger, Gene, and cutoff will be at 11 plus 47. 11 plus 47. 11 plus 47, Roger. Okay, 1130 and we're go here and uh, stand by. Roger, Gene. Cutoff time is still holding good, 11 plus 47. Okay, cutoff at 4-2. Understand, cut off at 4 2, right? We copy. And that looked like a near nominal shutdown. At shutdown, we show 25,600 feet per second. That also looks very close. 89.5. Roger, Gene, we're copying the disk key. Okay, Jack. Gene Cernan reporting the onboard indication of an orbit of 93.5 by 89.5. Now we'll be getting tracking and confirming that here on the ground. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. <laughs> this is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 373 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17, The Launch. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Uh, I want the uh, first announcement to... Uh, Thanks to my web host, GoDaddy, I have had to change my email address, so please update your records. If you need to contact me, use the address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Furthermore, we have moved the website host to a new service due to the poor performance and total lack of customer support at GoDaddy. The final straw was when GoDaddy refused to work with Google Podcast. Now that we have moved, Space Rocket History is back on Google Podcast. Many, many of you have written me emails about Google Podcast, and we are now back up on Google Podcast at last, and I am delighted. So check that out on Google Podcast. And as a bonus... 
We're moving to the new host. My website speed has increased significantly. Now, none of this really requires you to do anything. You don't need to make any changes. Just act like nothing has happened. Everything should work like it used to work. The website URL is still spacerockethistory.com. So go check out the new host. It will be faster. <laughs> and uh, it will actually work on Google Podcasts now, which is a big thing for me. Our next episode will be posted in a couple weeks, hopefully by October 14th. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 195 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Today we celebrate our satellite emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for four consecutive years and receive a satellite emoji next to their name on the donors page. Okay, some quick afterthoughts. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that replay of the launch with the astronauts, candid conversations as much as I did. You know, I could feel my pulse quickening as I listened to it. That was exciting. Our last moon launch, and that clip may have been the best one I have used for a moon launch. I guess I saved the best for last. Now, the problem they had. I hope I explained the problem with the sequencer clearly. In case I didn't, I'll talk just a little bit more about it. As I understand it, the sequencer had to verify that it had sent the signal to pressurize the tank, not that the tank was actually pressurized. That is a programming mistake because you are not checking if the tank is pressurized. You are just checking if the signal was sent. A number of things could have gone wrong and the tank could not have been pressurized, but the sequencer would have continued with the launch because it was only checking if the signal was sent. It's much better to use the pressure sensor on the tank to verify that it is pressurized. And Apollo 17 would have launched on time had they done it that way based on checking the tank pressure. I've done quite a bit of programming like this in my engineering career, so to me this was kind of unsafe and, and just a rookie programming mistake. I'm surprised it was not caught earlier, but I guess it was eventually caught on the last one, Apollo 17. I hope you recall a couple episodes ago I did a biography on Gene Cernan. Well, during that bio, I talked about Gene getting hurt at a softball game. One of my super nice supporters wrote me a wonderful email about that. He said it was okay to share it with you, and I think you'll like this. This is from Dr. Mark Wittick. Hi, Mike. Just listened to Apollo's 17 glitches. I had to laugh a little when you brought up the softball game. I was at that game and witnessed an injury. It was a slide head first into home plate. 
a cloud of dust followed by concern for broken bones by a spectator slash physician in attendance. No, not Gene Cernan, but Fritz Wittig. They had a traditional engineer versus astronauts game, and Dad ended up breaking both his wrists in a head-first dive for home. He spent the next... Now, they were taking this game seriously, man. <laughs> he spent the next six weeks with both arms casted to the elbows. Also present was Jim Myers, who is writing a book on his many years working with NASA. You might reach out to him. I copied him on this note. I guess I did not notice when Gene Cernan got injured, but Jim may have some information. He did tell me about how that game changed NASA policy regarding sports before a mission. Anyway, I'm attaching a photo of Dad with both casts and the Apollo 17 lunar module and rover in the background. He was running the final test before stacking. Mark continues, I was at the launch and remember the last minute hold well. A great, beautiful evening, and we passed the whole time throwing a football and frisbee with my cousins who traveled from Kansas to see the last moon mission on the NASA causeway until the Saturn V turned night into day a few hours late. Keep it up, love the episodes, Mark Wittick. The picture he sent with his father in the lunar module was absolutely fantastic. He's holding up his his arms, and you can see his cast on his arms. <laughs> I really appreciate that email, Mark. That was fantastic. Okay, moving on. For those interested in the farm project, there has been some progress. The basement walls have been waterproofed. The basement rough-end plumbing is complete. And I expect to have a rock floor in the basement by the end of the week. Now, we had our roof trusses delivered, but several of them were broken, so that means they have to be repaired. I don't know why they can't just send them back to the manufacturer to replace them, but apparently that is just not how it's done these days. So, I have to rely on some contractor-repaired roof trusses in my new house. They tell me now they will pour the concrete for the basement next week, but I am not holding my breath on that one. And that is the update for this fortnight. Now, over the last fortnight, we had several contributions and some increases on Patreon. I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Artemis level. Matthew O. donated at the Starship level and earned a shooting star emoji. Joe P. from Michigan sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Wayne and Naomi Holmes from Washington sent in another donation and moved to the Mir ISS level with Nova emoji. Woody J. from Minnesota donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Graham M. from Australia sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. 
Tom R. from Georgia donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. John E. from California donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Michael S. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Artemis level. Justin J. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. And Giannis T. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you very much. Our total donors... Our total Patreon donors have reached 250. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 386. And our goal is 500 by the end of 2021. It was encouraging to see that we are almost up to the average financial support for the month of September. Thank you so much for that. So, if you're enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. The winner of the SRH drawing will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet or the SRH archive magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or a genuine meat NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Johan Benson. Johan Benson, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, remember that's spacerockethistory at gmail.com, to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 386 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Apollo 17 Press Kit, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, The Apollo 17 Flight Journal, The Internet Archive, The Oral History 2000 Project, Flickr, Ron Evans, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 374 posted by October 14th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.